Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's amazing how many people will say, oh, I'm afraid to look at myself in the mirror. I can never do that. And so what does that really say about one's relationship to themselves? Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Tara Well on the show. Tara is an associate professor of psychology at Barnard College of Columbia University, where she has taught personality psychology, health psychology, and psychology of leadership for over 20 years. Her research on motivation, perception, and cognition have been funded by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Mental Health. She outlines the research and benefits of her meditation program in her latest book, Mirror Meditation. In this episode, I talked to Tara about mirror meditation. What is the first thing you think of when you look in the mirror? For a lot of us, our initial instinct is to nitpick at our flaws. Using mirror meditation, Tara teaches people how to use one's reflection to promote self-acceptance and inner knowing. The mirror can also help us become kinder, not just to ourselves, but to the people around us as well. We also touch on the topics of narcissism, compassion, and attachment. It was really great catching up with my colleague at Columbia, Tara, who I hold in very high esteem. Her work is really great and really novel. I hope that it helps you view the world in new ways and to view yourself in new ways, just like her work has helped me with. So without further ado, I bring you Tara Well. Tara Well, I'm so glad to finally have you on my show. It's great to be here, Scott. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. The great Tara Well. Can you tell our audience a little bit about you? Obviously, I know you uh, as a colleague from Barnard College, uh, Columbia University, as the star professor there, Barnard, uh, Tara Well. And you were so kind and warm and welcoming when I first got there, I remember, and I'll never forget that. I'm, I'm so deeply appreciative of you and I uh, love your work. But tell the broader world more about you. Sure. Well, it, it's a thrill to have you at Barnard and teaching for us. It's amazing. Uh, you know, what you're doing in the class to really use psychology research to teach our students some great skills to help to regulate their emotions and to be more present and enjoy the present moment in their lives. 
I've been um, at Bernard for about 25 years. I've been teaching personality psychology there. Awesome. I remember my job interview thinking like, oh, I'd love to have gone to a school like that. And it all worked out. So I got to be there. I've been there for all these years teaching our amazing undergraduates. I have a PhD in personality psychology that I received from Michigan State, where I work with Professor Joel Ernoff, who was one of Abraham Maslow's original students at Brandeis in the 70s. So I started out doing a lot of work in motivation, which is why I love your work so much, and continuing to carry that torch of all those wonderful ideas, bringing them forward again. That is so cool. I, I didn't actually know about that history. What was your uh, dissertation about? Like, what was the title of your doctoral dissertation? My dissertation was like this ponderous title called The Antecedents of Complex of Cognitive Complexity. So I was talking about differentiation and integration as two psychological processes that we can use to think about, you know, how we perceive other people. Do we see differences? Do we see connections? How do we see, see links between other people? And just looking also at how differentiation can be re more related to individual orientations toward things and seeing the connections and the integration is more related to more social kinds of variables, what used to be called the difference between agency and communion years ago, differences between sort of like individualism, collectivism. I love that. Uh, and I love that difference between communalism and agentism. <laughs> it is. Uh, I love that agentic or communal way of style. But but some of us favor one over the other, as as I think we can see sometimes. Yes, yes. But then I have getting been really getting interested in um, what happens when both are at the, at the extremes and both become toxic. So toxic agency, yeah. and I'm also interested in toxic altruism, and I've been I've published uh, some work on on that. So yes, yes, that sounds great. It used to be called unmitigated. The idea I know, that I if know. you have the, if you have the one, that's right. It's not as good as having a little bit of both. <laughs> yes, yes, I know it's called unmitigated. I love reframing things that sound really technical to something a little more sexy. So uh -huh. uh, just toxic sounds a little sexier for the for the general public. <laughs> yeah. Unmitigated sounds scary. It sounds like yeah. something yeah. coming at you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose toxic is scary <laughs> yeah. too. But uh, anyway, love it, love it, love it. Okay. So wait, so you're, are you a social psychologist? Is that your I'm, identity? I'm a personality psychologist. Okay, personality have, psychologist. I'm training in social psychology and developmental psychology. Okay. I know a lot of social psychology and I, I teach it to some degree. There's some of it in my book, but yes. A social personality. We're going to go with that. Uh, it's an unsocial personality, right? <laughs> there is, there, there is, no, no, there, there's, yeah. Is that different than antisocial though? <laughs> I don't know. Social personality sounds, sounds yeah. good. Okay. So what is the pathway from that dissertation work to the research you started doing earlier in career to like, where did you start to get into mirror meditation? Like, cause this is your baby. I mean, this is like, I think mirror meditation, I think Tara will like, at what, when did you, you know what I'm saying? At what point in your career did, did you like come up with that term? Did you think, Oh, well, this could be really valuable to helping people. Like where, when was that? Well, I'd always been really interested in how and why people perceive the same thing differently. Why everybody's perception of reality is just like a little bit different or sometimes a lot different. And as a personality psychologist, I was 
looking for personality variables, motivations, ways of perceiving that could kind of account for that variability. And so I did a a lot of work on motivation and looking at differences in cognitive processes and perception, and then also looking at autobiographical memories early on. And then I became more interested in uh, developing my own meditation practice And one of the tools was, you know, sitting there kind of with my eyes closed. When you meditate, you're supposed to kind of clear your mind and focus on your breathing and relax your body. But as a psychologist, I was always more interested in sort of the content of what I'm thinking. Why why did that idea just pop into my mind right then? You know, and what does it mean and all that? Rather than trying to breathe it away, I wanted to think about what it really meant. And I started to look in the mirror when I was meditating to try and track my, you know, feelings and emotions or what was the feeling or sensation I was having right before I thought a certain thought as a way to sort of externalize what was happening in my own mind by seeing it in the mirror. And it was, it was really useful to me. So I wanted to do some mirror gazing experiments with people to see if it was useful for them too, and to see what they would discover if they were willing to take the time to really look at themselves. And really the the three main things that I discovered was that people are much more critical of themselves than they realize. When they sit in front of a mirror with nothing to do, the first thing they usually do is find things wrong with them and, and criticize themselves. And then the second thing is Oftentimes, there's a bit of a disconnect between our emotions, how our emotions are showing up on our face and what we're feeling inside. And working with the mirror can oftentimes help people develop more awareness of what they're actually feeling and how maybe some of the social display rules that we've been taught have prevented them from actually feeling deeply what they're feeling socially. And then the third was just people becoming more aware of how looking at other people affected other people and how being seen by other people was affecting them. And the quality of those interactions, just gazes, not talking, but just how people can look at you and kind of change how you're feeling about yourself or how you're feeling about a situation and the power in that. I have so many questions. <laughs> First, let me ask you, Did was there any precedent in the psychological literature to this? Had, had anyone actually, Donald, had anyone in the history of humanity before you to talk about the value of staring at yourself in the mirror for meditation purposes? I tend not to say staring because it sounds like like harsh. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Amazing, but... Observing with calmness. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, there was early work by Louise Hay, who was a, a self-love guru, and she she developed mirror work, which was actually positive affirmations in the mirror. And you might have seen skits on Saturday Night Live, Stuart Smalley saying how much he loved himself in the mirror, that kind of thing. But then there was more much recently a study done by um, Nicola Petroshki, I believe, mm. in which they did a really interesting study to try and see if there was any actual results that could be found from doing the mirror gazing and saying affirmations. And they, they had three conditions. They had um, first pe- people were asked to come up with kind of reassuring phrases that they would give to a friend who was in distress. So it was more realistic because some of the the positive affirmations can kind of almost be like gaslighting yourself. You're saying things like, like if, if you really feel, you know, fat and ugly and you say, I'm thin and I'm beautiful, and it doesn't really work very well. And it can almost be like gaslighting yourself into, you know, not coming into contact with yourself as truly feel. So 
in the study, they had the three conditions, one in which they said the affirmations in front of the mirror, the other in which they just said the affirmations, and then they just gazed at themselves in the mirror. And they found that people felt a lot better and, and actually experienced different types of physiological effects. The ability to downwardly regulate their emotions when they said positive affirmations in the mirror. So they created a self-soothing effect by mm. looking at themselves. And so I think this is very much related to how we mutually gaze with each other and that that creates a dopamine hit and it also helps us to regulate and connect with each other. And you can do that with yourself in the mirror. Wow. Are you familiar with the Saturday Night Live character in the 80s, uh, Stuart Smalley? Uh-huh. Yeah. Played by Al Franken. I'm yeah. good enough. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm good <laughs> enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Now, what you're doing is not that. No. no can, we be clear? That. can we be clear to people? Yeah, yeah. Yes. This is a silent meditation in which you basically sit with yourself using the principles of mindfulness meditation, trying to keep your attention in the present moment, having an open awareness of anything that you might be experiencing during the meditation, and then having a kind intention toward yourself. We found many people's first impulse is to just criticize themselves, to find something wrong, either with their physical appearance or some aspect of their personality or, or, or something about themselves that just seeing themselves activates that. And so that's really important information for people to work with because oftentimes, you know, those critical thoughts are kind of running in the background or they get evoked when we talk to other people. But to be able to work with those um, with, with ourselves uh, can be really useful. Absolutely. I agree. You know, I'm really curious about that the interplay between identity and the way our physical appearance and, and well, ways that our identity can influence our perceptions of our physical appearance or our perceptions of who we are. What is the intertwined nature there between the identities we have and how we see ourselves in front of the mirror and, and seeing ourselves in reality? This is complex stuff, right? It's really complex. People think you just, oh, just sit in front of the mirror and stare at yourself. <laughs> but a lot happens when you're doing that. If you're really will, willing to sit and commit to looking at yourself, a lot can happen. And I think one of the main things that people realize is that oftentimes they have identities that have been assigned to them by other people. And so when they look in the mirror, they can oftentimes, uh, and I even have some exercises in the book where I ask people to come up with the names that people use to describe them. Like if you're, you know, the difference between being Professor Kaufman versus Scott, or maybe a friend to call you Scotty or something like that, and how that would make you feel differently. Uh, and then, then to say those words that people call you and to see how that feels in your body as you look at yourself in the mirror. And in that way, it, it really helps people, you know, see what lands with them and what doesn't. And I think helps them get clearer on the roles that they're playing and do they want to play them? Uh, and, you know, and the toll it might be taking on them emotionally to be a certain thing for a certain person or to act in a certain way that's consistent with how they always acted, but now they feel that they've changed beyond it. So the mirror can really be a way to kind of experiment with alternative identities or shifts in identity. It's a great exercise to do when you're going through an identity shift, be it a, a change in your 
I don't know, your, your sexuality, the change in your relationship status, the change in your, your work environment, um, loss of a friend, uh, all kinds of experiences that impact our identity in direct ways. It's great to be able to sit in front of the mirror and just say, whoa, who am I now? You know? And have that be an open question. Yeah, I think this this constant uh, balancing line between self acceptance and the, and wanting to change things is really interesting. And uh, how can mirror meditation help you figure out which which is which? I mean, we already ascertained it's not Stuart Smalley's technique. You're not, no matter who you are. Like, let's say you're morbidly obese and you stand in front of the mirror and you're like, I am skinny, right? I mean, that's obviously not true, right? And so like, but then if you just have self-acceptance of that, then you won't ever hit the gym or you won't ever do what you have to do to lose some weight. So how can mirror meditation help you see yourself clearly and, and motivate you to change? One of the things that I um, emphasize is that first you should get comfortable just seeing yourself and not doing anything because we oftentimes live in a, a culture where we have to keep constantly doing things. And many people who are interested in these kinds of techniques, they're on a very rigorous self-improvement program. So they want to sit down, they want to do mirror meditation, they want to get results, and and they have to be constantly working on something to change. Mm -hmm. And what I recommend uh, for people, people have those kinds of tendencies to always like, how am I improving? You know, I have to be improving every second to just do nothing, to just do nothing. To just sit for 10 minutes a day in front of the mirror, get a cup of coffee or whatever, and just do nothing. That's going to be hard for some people who, who like that. They, they want to hack every moment. It's very hard. But think about it. You know, we all want to have these relationships with people that we're in the present moment and they accept us for who we truly are and we just hang out and appreciate each other. And we can't do that for ourselves. We always have to be, you know, doing something, striving to be better. I bet it was, yeah, there's a lot of pressure for that in our society today. With all the, in, in the self-help world, you know, there's a lot of like, uh, get up at 6 a.m. and every day and run five miles. Right. You can just, mirror meditation is actually perfect when you first get up and just sitting with yourself for 10 minutes as a way to center and start your day. So mirror meditation too, it's also about, it's more about listening than about talking. So it's about listening to your kind of like your inner knowing, which might sound a little cheesy, but, but it's like, (laughs) it's like, you know, how am I feeling about, my day, you know, instead of, you know, checking things off my to-do list, if I just hang out with myself for 10 minutes, how, how is that going to, you know, help me to be centered? Yeah, I hear you. And don't worry, everyone. We are going to do a sample meditation today, I assume, at the end, oh, at, the okay. end at the end, right? Right. right? Is that sure. okay? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. So everyone can see how, uh, how this is applied. The trauma, loss, and uncertainty of our world have led many of us to ask life's biggest questions, such as who are we? What is our highest purpose? And how do we not only live through, but thrive in the wake of tragedy, division, and challenges to our fundamental way of living? To help us all address these questions, process what this unique time in human history has meant for us personally and collectively, and emerge whole, I've collaborated with my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Jordan Feingold, MD, to bring you our forthcoming book. It's called Choose Growth a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. It's a workbook designed to guide you on a journey of committing to growth and the pursuit of self-actualization every day. It's chock full of research from humanistic psychology, positive psychology, developmental psychology, personality psychology, cognitive science, and neuropsychology. So lots of themes that you hear about on this podcast. 
and is aimed to help us all integrate the many facets of ourselves and co-create our new normal with a renewed sense of strength, vitality, and hope. Whether you're healing from loss, adapting to the new normal, or simply looking ahead to life's next chapter, Choose Growth will help steer you there to deeper connection to your values, your life vision, and ultimately your most authentic self. Choose Growth will officially hit the shelves September 13th, and you can pre-order your copy or the audiobook in the U.S. now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all major retailers. If you're in the U.K. and Commonwealth, you can pre-order now at bookshop.org.uk. We truly hope this book helps you grow and thrive and become your best self. Okay, now back to the show. So let's go through uh, some of some more of the sort of theory behind it and uh, and philosophy behind it. So, how can you unfreeze yourself with mirror meditation? Ah, yes, I talk in the book about the stress response. Uh, fight, freeze, and, and flee. And so unfreezing, we tend to freeze, you know, suddenly when something catches us off guard. And you can unfreeze yourself by simply moving, moving your body in some way. And then also, the example I give in the, the book is a, a cat collar. So you're, you know, a woman's walking down the street and someone says, hey, nice body part. And woman freezes and then feels bad because she froze because some random person is like creating this yeah. response. So one of the best ways to unfreeze is to take your attention from yourself and how you're feeling and put it back onto whatever the threat is. So, so that you're taking attention off yourself and putting it onto another person instead of focusing on, Ooh, maybe I do, you know, if someone criticizes you, you know, something to do with your appearance or something like that. People tend to focus on themselves but really, it's better to take their attention off of themselves onto the situation. Sure. That's one of the best ways to manage anxiety, particularly social anxiety. Because in social anxiety, we tend to focus on ourselves and how we're feeling and how we might be looking to other people and how we're coming across. But when we just put our attention on the other person, mm. uh, that can really shift things. So the mirror is really about practicing shifting your attention in different ways. So you can focus on what you're feeling inside, your emotions and body sensations. You can look outside yourself at the other people you're talking to, at your environment. And you can also take a third person perspective, which is more of a self-objectifying perspective. So you're actually sort of like watching yourself from a bird's eye view about how other people see you. And that can oftentimes lead to anxiety if, if you do it in times when you don't want to do it. And there's a, a good deal of research showing that self-objectification can, you can evoke self-objectification using mirrors because we're all been trained to scrutinize our appearance using mirrors and to compare ourselves with perfect images that we see in the media. Oh, such a good point. What about like narcissists who uh, every t everywhere there's a mirror, they get a chance, they look at themselves in the mirror. Do you ever think like uh, mirror meditation can run amok, you know, <laughs> among narcissists? Like, well, too much focus on the self. Right, right. Well, that was one of the main sort of criticisms I was anticipating putting this work out, out into the world because it did seem like, what am I just advocating narcissism? So I did think about it and I did uh, do some research on it. And my sense of this is that narcissists can only really focus on their surface appearance. So they'll look in the mirror, but they don't have the patience to go deeper. They don't have the patience to look for, for 10 minutes and be involved in what they're actually 
experiencing. And of course, there's been a long history of a, of a connection between um, narcissism and mirrors. In fact, that's how the disorder was named of the narcissist looking at himself in the mirror and getting kind of stuck in looking at his own reflection. In the research on narcissism, particularly the neuroscience on narcissism, it appears that narcissists can't turn off self-focus in their um, interior insula. So it's- Wow, that's super interesting. Right. And so in the research that shows, like like one of the main things about narcissism, the hallmark of narcissism is that narcissists don't have a capacity for empathy. And oftentimes we characterize that as some kind of willful- I want to focus on me. I'm self. I'm self-absorbed. I don't care about other people. But there's some research to suggest that this could be happening at a, at a neurological level, so that the interior insula of narcissists they tend not to be able to shift from self-focus to other focus as readily. So they're always sort of focused on themselves in sort of this automatic way. Empathy can come about by being able to recognize the emotions in others, particularly emotions of distress in others. And there's a few studies that show that narcissists cannot recognize negative emotions, particularly fear and anger in others. And they're also can't really downward regulate their own anxiety. Mm. But they oftentimes have this facade of being very cool and together. So the combination of not being able to um, shift out of self-focus, then also not being able to re- uh, to recognize these negative emotions of distress in others, and also not ha- having an impaired ability to regulate their own level of arousal, all sort of contributes to sort of the annoying behavior we sometimes see in that that self-focus in, nar- in narcissists where they don't really reflect the emotions of others and are able to be in, in communication. So one of the things that I recommend as a possibility is, you know, when people are in that self-focused uh, state, instead of getting annoyed, you might need to just point out how you're feeling or keep keep drawing their attention back to how you're feeling in more obvious ways than you might think you need to for someone who can has more capacity to shift their self-focus. Wow, wow, wow. So what tell the, our audience a little more who uh, our audience who do, aren't neuroscientists what the anterior insula does? What are some of its functions? The anterior insula acts like a switch between two main types of cognitive function. One is ability to function on tasks and do the work at hand and the other is the self-focus. And basically it's difficult to do both at the same time. So the example I give oftentimes is you're a skier and you're going downhill in your skis. What you don't want to do is shift your attention to either oh, how nervous you are about, you know, doing this or worse yet, focusing on how you look in your ski suit to the person, to the people in the audience, because you're going to hit a tree. You want to be able to just focus on the task at hand. And so if you're always thinking about yourself, it's going to impair your ability to function and certainly to relate to other people. Thank you for that, that little neuroscience 101. There's a chapter in your book uh, about compassion for the narcissist. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, talk a little about about what, what you meant about that? And again, I, I want to keep digging deeper into why uh, your meditation actually can lead us out of narcissism paradoxically. Well, compassion for the narcissist is, it's really about reframing it instead of 
as an annoying person who's pulling our attention onto them, uh, thinking about what it is that they truly need and why they're not getting that. So the idea of calling narcissism narcissism and psychoanalysts identified um, a certain kind of patient they had that had an insatiable need to be seen and, and reflected and, and reaffirmed. But it seemed to be a one-way reflection in that their patient was unable to regard other people as any more than reflectors of them. So that they didn't really see people as people, but people who were going to admire and think that they were great. Uh, and that ended up being what was called a mere transference. So the question is, why would someone do that? Well, one of the things that we know about narcissism is that people oftentimes identify with an idealized self-image that they have created oftentimes, again, to shield them against vulnerability and feeling the negative emotions. This can often be due to trauma or some kind of uh, emotional abuse and inaccurate reflection. So mm-hmm. being reflected in ways that are just not sustainable. So for instance, the, the child who's told that they're brilliant and beautiful and wonderful, and then expects the whole world to always stop and see them as brilliant and beautiful and wonderful, when in fact, they that might not be the most accurate way to see oneself, because everyone has both good and bad qualities. So the narcissist only wants to focus on the good qualities, but to really build like a sense of self-esteem, a, a sense of efficacy and and accomplishment, you have to have failure experiences too. And you have to have accurate reflection. You have to have people around who tell you, hey, you're not good at this, or you need to get better at that. Or what you said was very, you know, uh, it had this impact on people. So maybe, you know, if you can think about some other ways to say things. So it's kind of developing sort of like a hard shell so that you can't feel anyone's criticisms of you anymore because it was it was just too painful for them to experience that when they were younger. So this can also be about growing up in a way that you weren't able to express any kind of vulnerability. Mm. And so the mirror can really help people who don't trust others to share their negative emotions and share their vulnerabilities so that you can develop that relationship with yourself first. Wow, that's amazing. So your mirror meditation can actually improve compassion among narcissists. I think, well, I I think it can improve compassion for narcissists. And I think that if they're willing to look, and again, the whole term narcissist, it's so broad, it's so general, it's about like, it can be anybody who doesn't do what you want them to do or pay attention to you. Sure. They're a narcissist because sure. they didn't do do what you wanted them to do or they were more focused on what they wanted to do. So it's hard to create those blanket statements, you know, but I would say that in general, it can really help people to develop a stronger relationship with themselves so that they feel safe to know themselves. Because it's amazing how many people will say, I'm afraid to look at myself in the mirror. I can never do that. And so what does that really say about one's relationship to themselves? You know, mm-hmm. to be afraid to look at yourself for 10 minutes. Yeah. So, And I have compassion for that. You know, I have yeah. compassion for people who don't want to look at themselves in the mirror. It's very common. In order to support the Psychology Podcast, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. 
So please go to podsurvey.com slash the dash psychology dash podcast and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us to get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash the dash psychology dash podcast. Thanks for your help. I was wondering if you've ever if you've ever worked with uh, someone who who would score very high on a narcissistic questionnaire and have seen a reduction in narcissism based on meditation. I was wondering if you've if you've any anecdotes. I don't have any. Let me see. Let me see how I answer that. Hmm. You've seen a lot in twenty five years. <laughs> I've seen a lot in twenty five years. The majority of people, I think, people can be very defensive about doing this kind of thing particularly if they're defending against their own vulnerability. So I oftentimes plant a seed with people, particularly people who get kind of like irritated with me and the idea of doing this. And I think that they might go away and the next time they pass by a mirror, they might, it might change their view of of who they are. But working with narcissists, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of commitment you know, the clinical work on narcissism really shows that you have to get them at a window when they feel really vulnerable, build trust and do individual psychotherapy. Narcissists also do better in groups, in group psychotherapy settings, because they can't develop that special relationship with the, their therapist, and they get reflection from a whole group of people. So in a sense, I think that group therapy when you get reflections from a lot of different people might be better than having a narcissist just look in the mirror because that's old hat for them. I don't think that they would benefit from it. And also it's sort of penetrating beyond your image. It's Mm. not about your image. It's not about what you look like. Mm. And so if you, if you really have that strong relationship with, I am what I look like and I'm looking at myself to feel better about myself, then you have to create some kind of a shift so that people can see themselves more deeply. Yes. So not just clearly, but deeply. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You have this phrase in your book that I just thought was brilliant because I never really thought of it before. I've seen it in the literature. You talk about anxious and avoidant attachment styles to other people. Mm-hmm. You talk about anxious and avoidant self-attachment. Self-attachment. I, right. That's genius. That's, it's genius. Have, did you come up with that phrase? I did. I did. I've never seen it in the literature. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's just an it's just an idea that's that's based on um, the attachment styles, and and this actually comes from a friend of mine who's a, a psychotherapist. Who uh, one of his core ideas that have, that has really made an influence in, in my life and looking at people is the idea of self abandonment. The idea that you're feeling bad about something and you don't stay with yourself. You abandon yourself to go off and you know distract yourself and do all kinds of things. But yet many people who tell stories about being abandoned, either by their parents or romantic partners or mentors or, or bosses or whatever, they can sometimes be um, struggling with not abandoning themselves mm-hmm. and staying present with themselves. So, so the mirror can help people come back to themselves. 
Uh, and that's sort of like avoidant, avoidant self-attachment, uh, abandoning yourself, disregarding your feelings, not wanting to be vulnerable, not able to sit with yourself and give yourself your full attention. And then anxious self-attachment is when you really can't focus on yourself because you're always in kind of what I call relationship monitoring mode. And that is you're always thinking about your relationships with other people and what they would think about what you were doing as you're doing whatever you're doing and, you know, not able to really drop the focus of, of thinking about other people and, and being concerned about your relationship with them in the moment. Wow. I think it's so, so brilliant. Have you ever written a, a full feature article about specifically that topic? I wrote a short piece for Psychology Today, one on uh, anxious self-attachment and the other on avoidant self-attachment. Okay. And I thought, the anxious self-attachment would, uh, you know, be a big hit because as yeah. we know, the, the literature on attachment shows that the majority of, uh, or, or more readers than, than, than any other tend to be anxious. So people who are anxiously attached read a lot of books about relationships because they want to, you know, sort of figure it out. And, and then the avoidance, uh, in theory, care less about relationships. So they don't buy relationship books or read read about relationships. But I found that the uh, avoidant attachment, the title of the article, Are You Avoiding Yourself? It ended up being like the number one article for like, like a few days on, on Psychology Today. And I, you know, it was amazing. I heard, I heard from a number of people that decided to try mere meditation to stop avoiding themselves. So, yeah. We should collaborate and create create scales, psychometrically valid scales for both avoidant and anxious self-attachment scales and validate it and, and correlate it with other attachment as well as narcissism, lots of things, vulnerable narcissism. I have all sorts of hypotheses about that already on the spot. Yeah, that sounds amazing. We should definitely do that. That would be such a fun collaboration. And we could just put that up on MTurk, you know, like this doesn't have to be rocket science study, but we can it, just a preliminary sort of exploration scientifically of that. I just think it's such a brilliant idea. So I'm down to do that collabo if, if you're okay. open. To it. Me too. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, relating to this, relating to this, because a big part of self, uh, a big part of attachments theory in general is trust. Right. You know, do you trust your partner to be there for you in times of need? So turning that within again, brilliant. I, I really do think it's so brilliant. Like you're underselling yourself a little bit. Like, you know, like it's, it's really revolutionary. Think of yourself. Well, from that attachment framework, what does it mean to trust yourself to be seen? Or what is also, what would it mean, you know, to trust yourself to be there for yourself in times of need, just like they apply to the attachment theory in general, what would that mean for yourself? And it's, it's such an interesting question. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. And I think doing the mirror meditation regularly, and I also have a section on video journaling, which is making a 10-minute video journal of whatever you're feeling you know, at the end of every day. And doing that consistently helps you build self-trust because mm. what the mirror does is it, it sort of externalizes what's happening inside of you. So when you see yourself in the mirror and you see yourself consistently there for yourself or not there for yourself, it creates a shift in you because oftentimes, and, and I think everybody does this and I certainly do this. When I go into a new situation, I look around for affirmation of if I'm okay, is everything going all right? Like, am I doing okay in your podcast kind of a thing, but you're doing great. Thank you. 
But And it's less so when you're able to trust yourself and you're there for yourself. It also helps you to choose more carefully your relationships with others and whose reflections you take in because we're being reflected all the time by people who are having reactions to us. And so if you don't have a solid sense of yourself and really know yourself, you're going to be more vulnerable to, you know, kind of these crazy reflections that people have have of you that aren't rooted in reality. Now, we all need people, we all need a, a core group of people who love us and understand us and can give us really good feedback. Um, but we also, you know, in the world of social media and, and public image, there's also all these other people who have these interesting reflections that can be somewhat negative and usually projections of their own stuff that can sort of get to us if we don't have that sense of self-trust that we can discern what really lands as true in us and what is just something that is not useful, that feedback that's not useful. And by you know, develop strengthening one's relationship with oneself, you can be more discerning about your relationships and the feedback you're getting from people. So good. So good. So how can you look at others through the eyes of love? Ah, well, we did do mirror gazing. One of the cool things that I did in, in New York, um, in New York was um, I did the public debut of mirror meditation at the Rubin Museum of Art, which is um, uh, downtown in Chelsea. And they have a, a wonderful um, room. It's a sacred shrine in the upper area. And we had like 60 people come and in silence come and take their seats in front of a mirror. And I guided them through a mirror meditation. And this was it was less of a kind of clinical psychological setting. It was much more of sort of like a spiritual sublime setting. So it was a feeling of beauty and reverence in this shrine. And so I thought it would be great because it would help people to see, you know, that aspect of themselves, that kind of divine aspect of themselves, if you will, or the appreciation of just being human. Just It's so hard just to be alive and just to experience that. And so at one point, what we did was I had them lift their gaze and to gaze at the person across from them. Mm. And something like magical happened because what oftentimes happens when people look in the mirror is they start to start to criticize themselves. And then I'll try to guide them to open their perception more broadly, to see themselves more broadly than just this little criticism that they've uh, of come up with about themselves. And once they've expanded that, it was so much easier for them to then look at other people and not be critical. So even people they didn't know, it was very easy for them to look at them like through the eyes of love. I talk about that, the Melissa Manchester song, I saw you through the eyes of love, that, that old song. But really being able to see people in that way is, is very helpful. And it's also helpful to, again, to understand the difference between what you're feeling and what other people are feeling. So one of the things I talk about in the book in terms of why sometimes people don't help or people might seem sort of callous and unconcerned is that other people's distress evokes strong emotions in them that they don't know how to regulate and they don't know how to manage. So that wow. they don't have the the capacity to downward regulate and then help. So they'll just yeah. do something to either distract themselves or um, you know avoid uh, contact with people in distress. 
Wow. Well, look, homegirl, you know, uh, a lot of people, they have what's called the highly sensitive personality. Right. And I imagine that this could be particularly a useful form of meditation for such individuals who um, are constantly shape-shifting based on who they're with. And, and uh, they, they have to feel, they feel other people's moods instantly and then they take it on. You have a whole chapter of your book, Reclaiming Your Projections. And I think that might be related to what we're talking about, right? Is like... I would put it, how can you reclaim yourself, maybe, in a way? I guess that's my question to you, is, you know, if you're the type of person where you just always feel like you groundless or you don't know who yourself is because you're so influenced by others, can this help you reclaim that self? Definitely. Spending time with yourself and then being aware of when your attention drifts off to other people and keep coming back to yourself. Uh, and you know, you can see some very interesting patterns in when your attention goes reaching for other people because that becomes a regulation strategy in and of itself and oftentimes doesn't work very well. But if you can see the pattern of when you start to feel a little bit of distress or when you start feeling overwhelmed by other people's em- emotions and come back to yourself, uh, that can really help a lot. We've covered a lot of ground, you know, um, maybe something we haven't really touched on so much is, is how this can increase love for your enemies in a way. Like there's a lot of times where others look threatening, right? Yeah. And uh, how can this meditation maybe help you see the best in another person, not just in yourself? Does that question make sense? It does indeed. Um, I I talk a little bit about hostility attribution bias, the idea that basically when someone does something that has a big impact on us, we're more likely to believe that they did it on purpose because of the impact, when in fact the other person might not even know what what they did. Um, And so a lot of that is being able to take yourself out of that experience and realizing what you're doing. And, you know, oftentimes people too will say, well, I don't really, you know, have a hostile bias. And I just think, but when's the last time your computer didn't work or your phone had a glitch in it and you thought like the phone or, or your GPS told, gave you the wrong directions. And you actually thought that person that was giving you the directions was, you know, somehow trying to mess with you, you know, and you, you went on a, you know, on a detour that you weren't expecting. And so when something has a big impact on us, we tend to look at why and and who who could have done this to us. So coming back to yourself, realizing that you're that, you know, it's sort of like also, you know, separating out the impact of an event uh, from then the intention of another person, because we oftentimes can't see other people clearly when we're in a state of defense when we're in a state of over arousal. Uh, So being able to, again, have those skills to downward regulate and be open to the idea that people could look differently than you think they do. Oh boy. Yeah. That could also happen when you idolize others, right? Uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, we, we can put people on a pedestal and as well as demonize others, you know, we can have this kind of splitting um, with people. So this, this form of meditation, you think can help give a broader sort of uh, view of a human and it's and it's grander complexity. Yeah, I think so. And, and also, you know, I talk in the books some about self-talk because some of it is a silent meditation, but you can also do self-talk to try on different perspectives. So there's some very good research that shows that talking 
about things from a third person perspective can give you more insight into how you're feeling. So you can say, you know, Scott is feeling distressed because this and this happened. Instead of I'm feeling distressed because this happened, gives you a bit of distance. And then the mirror adds an extra piece of distance because you're externalizing that in that internal dialogue. Uh, and then you're also taking the third person perspective. So the mirror is really just a tool that you can really use to shift your awareness and shift your perspective on how you're perceiving the events in your life, which was my original question. How and why do people perceive reality differently? And how can we change that and make it more accurate and more humane? Mm, What a great question. So I'm now querying my mind. Would you like to uh, do a two to five minute meditation? Sure. Mirror mirror meditation. You want to do it for the world? I do want to do it for the world, but I want to tell people if they're driving, don't do mirror meditation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for, yeah, yeah, that. (laughs) Okay. So when you do the meditation, what what you just want to do is find a way to have a mirror so you don't have to like pitch forward or grip it. Uh, and so you can see yourself clearly. So these days I just have people, you know, turn their zoom camera on. So, so that the, the camera is big enough to see themselves and use the camera as a mirror. And I just start with a little bit of a progressive relaxation, some three part breathing. And I ask people to just gently close their eyes And feeling into your breath, noticing if your breath is all in your upper chest. And um, this sometimes happens when we're on um, uh, Zoom camera or talking. See if you can take some belly breaths to expand your belly, rib cage, and collarbones as you breathe in. And then gently contracting collarbones, ribcage, and belly as you breathe out. And feeling your feet on the ground, uncrossing your arms and your legs. And starting with just do a brief progressive relaxation, starting with the tips of your toes, relaxing your toes, imagining mud oozing between your toes, the balls of your feet, relaxing the balls of your feet, letting them sink in, your instep, your heels. Relaxing your ankles, your calves, your knees and your thighs. Relaxing your hips and your lower back and your belly. Relaxing your rib cage, your middle back. Relaxing the front of your chest and your upper back. Relaxing your shoulders. And noticing your hands, noticing if your hands are gripping anything real or imagined, and seeing if you can just let that go. Uh, you can just drop whatever to the ground, or uh, sometimes I have people imagine that they're putting the important things on a shelf that they can pick up after. And then relaxing your upper arms, your elbows, forearms, your wrists, hands, and fingertips. And bringing your attention up to the back of your neck, the front of your throat and focusing on your face, letting all the muscles in your face relax. Imagining your face as being like pelted by a waterfall or um, 
in the shower and just letting all the muscles go slack, gently parting your teeth, relaxing your jaw, your chin, your cheeks, your tongue and your lips, relaxing the muscles behind your eyes, muscles between your eyebrows, your forehead and your scalp, relaxing your hair and your teeth and your ears, just letting everything go. And then when you feel ready, gently open your eyes and take a look, keeping your gaze soft, noticing if your breathing changes, noticing any first thoughts, noticing the affective tone of looking at yourself. Is it negative, positive? Do you feel happy, sad, angry? What is the general tone you have toward yourself as you look? There's no right or wrong way to do it. Also noticing if your attention tends to get very focused or fixated on some aspect of your appearance. And if you start to maybe want to tell a story about it or fix it, seeing if you can just let that go. And just be really curious can you imagine that you might see yourself or see something about yourself that you don't already know? And keeping a kind intention toward yourself. If you do notice yourself criticizing yourself, one of the um, things I recommend is to see if you can shift your attention from being the object of your criticism to being the receiver of it. Can you shift to see yourself as the person who's receiving these criticisms and how that might be affecting you? And so we would go on like this for some time. People can do this for 10 minutes or longer. Um, it's important to stay grounded and feeling your physical body as well as your breathing. Some people can do this and they'll start to hallucinate. They, they you know, like steer, yeah. steer a hole into them, in, into the, the mirror and they, they almost start to uh, get in an alternate from doing it. So it's important. Mm -hmm. if, if you're open, if you have a high openness to experience score, you can, you can get into that absorption of looking at yourself, uh, <laughs> And uh, yes, I've, I've, I've had some great reports of people who claim to have morphed into all these uh, different creatures and, and, and stuff, which is very interesting in and of itself. Well, thank you so much, uh, Tara, for, for doing this. Um, I think your work is really revolutionary, and I sure hope you'll come and, um, and uh, do a little guest lecture for my students this uh, in the fall. I um, do a meditation for them. Um, I think college students could really use this. Yes, um, definitely. They're, they're so self-critical, aren't they? They're so self-critical. And also just, you know, managing anxiety. Mm. This, this is an excellent technique for, for managing anxiety, coming back to yourself, working with those negative, those critical thoughts. So look forward to having you come back to Barnard in the, in the fall. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tara. Good luck with the book and thanks for coming on the psychology podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been great. Thank you so much, Scott.
My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.